At the very earliest stages of life, how do stem cells know how to turn into the right cells at the right time and go to the right places? Just a few stem cells turn into the billions of neurons we have in our brains. I'm Carolyn Barry, and welcome to A Grey Matter, the podcast of the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland. In this episode, we talk to Professor Helen Cooper, Deputy Director of Research at the Queensland Brain Institute. She studies the complex world of the signalling pathways that stem cells use to turn into neurons, and what happens when this goes wrong. So, Helen, let's start with some of the basics. What is the cortex of the brain and what does it do? So the cortex is the uh, large area of neural tissue at the top of your head, going from your forehead back to back of your head. And that's the uh, where all the majority of the high-end calculations. The cortex is really the seat of all of the high functions that we associate with being human. So um, learning and memory, consciousness, interactions with people, language, and it also controls or is the major control centre for all your motor skills. So it's sort of the control centre. It brings in all the information from the periphery, reorganises it, sends it to different centres within the cortex to be modified and integrated with other incoming signals, and then it sends out signals to whichever part of the body at the time needs to respond. And it's kind of the, the bulk of the brain, of a human brain anyway, right? It's the largest part of the brain that contains 50-60% of all the neurons, if not more, in the cortex, which is itself divided into subdomains. And compared to other animals, it's much larger, and some animals don't really have um, a cortex at all, do they? Or it's very, very underdeveloped or very small. Right. So all mammals have a cortex. Fish mm-hmm. don't have cortexes. And birds don't really have cortexes either. It's a higher animal, such as mammals have them, but not all mammal cortexes are the same either. Some different aspects in terms of architecture than placental mammals, for instance. How similar is an animal cortex compared to a human cortex? So we use the mouse as our model, and the mouse is probably the most utilised animal model for studying cortical development. So it's pretty much the same in terms of its basic architecture. Maybe things are elongated or shrunk a bit, but pretty much the same, and it has pretty much the same cell type. So if you look at a mouse brain, it's very smooth, but if you start to go up the evolutionary tree, you'll see things like ferrets and cats and dogs start to develop what are called um, sulky and gyri, so that they start to develop ridges and dips. And then as you get to humans, it has a lot of these dips and valleys. And that's because there's so many more neurons in the human cortex compared to a mouse. So the mouse is a good model because it has all the different types of neurons that we want to look at and the different structures, but there's much fewer of them. So the, the gyrations in the more complex mammalian brain is due to the fact that the Tissue has to fold to fit everything in. So human brains are a lot more wrinkly than than some of those smaller animals. So why is it important to study the cortex? Well, the cortex is the key to how we interact with the world. That includes just our local environment, but also how we interact with our colleagues and our families. And so to be able to navigate all of those different circumstances, we have to process a lot of information at the same time, and often it's very complex. It's coming in visually, it's coming in through the auditory system, it's coming in through the sensory system, and that all has to be integrated such that the brain understands our interaction and then knows the appropriate response. What got you into studying the cortex in the first place? 
So my interest has always been the stem cells. I mean, overall, it's a very small number of cells that give rise to the hundreds of billions of neurons. They all come from the same set of cells. So it's pretty amazing when you think of the small set of cells that lines your early brain gives rise to the whole. It's not just that they make large numbers. They do it in a very specified order. One type of neuron first, then the next. And they know when to change from making neuron A to making neuron B. So it's all coordinated with what needs to be done at that particular time during development. And your research focuses on understanding cortical development. So that's how the cortex develops right from the start of life. Can you tell me a little bit more about your research? The cortex starts off as a single tube. And that tube starts at the very front of your head and it goes all the way down. It becomes your brain, all the different parts of your brain, and then the spinal cord. But in the the end, that will become your head and therefore your main part of your brain blows up quite rapidly and forms a bit like a balloon and it forms slowly all of the different neural structures. So in the initial tube, that's just a tube of stem cells. And then those stem cells have to undergo a lot of different actions and divisions and um, decide to become lots of different types of neurons. And so obviously, if you've got 100 million neurons in your cortex, they all come from these stem cells. So one of the big questions in developmental neurobiology is how does a single set of fairly simple cells called stem cells that line a tube suddenly mid to late gestation, whether it's mouse or human, how can they produce not just the large number of neurons it has to produce, but at a different time it has to know it needs to produce an inhibitory neuron or an interneuron. And they also need to know not just either an inhibitory or an excitatory neuron, but exactly what subset of those neurons. So the cortex contains many, many thousands of different types of neurons, and they all come from the same set of stem cells. And then those stem cells also give rise to the cells that are the guardians of the central nervous system, so the glia cells that protect and vacuum up the damaged cells and the toxins and things like that. So they all come from the same set of cells. So obviously, if those cells don't do their thing at the right time in the right place, then you start to get cortical malformations. So we look at the molecular mechanisms that control division and the decisions these stem cells make to make a specific type of neuron. And so if those decisions are inaccurate or cells don't make them at all, then you get a range of different types of cortical malformations. And so that could be things like hydrocephalus or... Um, and what is what is hydrocephalus? So hydrocephalus is usually seen postnatally, so just after the baby's born. The brain fills up with the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the fluid that bathes all the neurons and provides nutrition and also soaks up all the toxins. So the volume of that has to be tightly regulated, and it's regulated through this subset of cells that line all the ventricles. If they aren't forming a cohesive layer, or they're not made properly in the first place, then there's nothing regulating the levels of the cerebral spinal fluid. And so it accumulates. And so in the baby, right when the brain is growing and it's in that sensitive phase when all the different types of neurons are being born and the architecture is being set up, the liquid volume expands and basically prevents the proper growth. And so a hydrocephalic baby will have quite a large head, which is largely CSF and a very small um, area of brain tissue, which has sort of been prevented from growing properly. So there's those sort of malformation. And then there's malformations where the neurons, once they're born, they're supposed to migrate to particular areas to form a sub-region of the brain. 
either the neurons are not born or they go to somewhere else. And so when you have neurons in the inappropriate place, you then set up circuitry that's short-circuiting or activating the wrong part of the brain. And so all of these different cortical malformations can cause severe um, intellectual disability. They can um, also cause epilepsy. And so the set of molecules we work on control the function of these stem cells. We've just recently realised that some of these molecules have direct links with autism. We are now able to do large genetic screens to try and identify the genes involved in autism. And a lot of the genes that are controlling the stem cell activity are also identified as genes mutated in autism. So there's a direct link there. So that suggests that there are cortical malformations in autism that may stem from this molecular set of molecules as well. So we do know that in autism, there are some disruptions to brain architecture. It's not as severe. So what we're learning in the neural stem cells in terms of our focus on cortical malformations is also telling us something about the sort of aberrations in cortical development for autism. And the other side of that is these molecules also control synapses. So synapses link one neuron to the other and they're the conduit through which the electrical activity goes to set up memory and and interactions between different neurons that make the brain work and then make your muscles work. These key set of proteins that we work on are also involved in synapse formation. The reason one set of molecules does everything is because they control one of the major scaffold of cells. So actin's a major scaffold that maintains the shape of cells and synapses. So it's like a building. If you knock down the scaffolding, everything falls in on itself and nothing works. So we're now seeing a link between a range of different developmental defects, autism, through synapses and stem cells because these proteins control the architecture of the cell by maintaining the scaffold. So it seems really important to be studying these kind of signalling molecules, right? So they're telling the neurons what to do, where to go, how to grow, what to grow into. And really that's quite amazing. Like how and when do those things happen? So tell us a little bit about what you found with those molecules for the stem cells. We started working on one molecule that we've been interested in a long time and found when we manipulated it, so we knocked it out or we put a mutation in it, that this scaffolding in the stem cells, so the actin scaffolding collapsed. These cells have very beautiful elongated shapes, which is very important for their function. So if you take this molecule out, they just collapse in a blob at the bottom of the tissue and can't make new neurons. And so that's where we started. And then so we wanted to know how our molecule actually managed to do this and started tracing back through molecular interactions to identify each of the different molecules. Our protein is named neogenin because it's involved in neo being new, so new neurons. Um, We track back through using a lot of molecular and biochemical tricks to work out what molecule interacted with what molecule. And so this is where we started to pick up that Within this signalling pathway, there was a lot of genes involved in autism. This neogenin molecule controls directly. So that's how we sort of thought, oh, autism, let's have a bit more of a look into that. And that led us to synapses. And we also have an interest in Huntington's disease from the point of view of, again, this particular pathway because of the fact that Huntington's disease has many, many aberrations in terms of molecular and cellular biology. It's a degenerative disease. 
But one of the things that's hit most aggressively is synapses. And so trying to understand how our pathway controls synapse formation now. So I have a PhD student who's really just shown that if you knock these proteins out in neurons, you don't get synapses. And synapse being, the, as you explained before, the connection between two, two neurons. neurons. So without, a, without the synapses working, the neurons can't talk to each other, right? Right. So in Huntington's, through a completely different mechanism, the neurons are dying, but one of the start to fall apart. And so the more you understand about what keeps synapses together, the more that may lead to innovative ideas about Huntington's disease and other degenerative diseases too. Yeah, it seems really interesting that we're talking about autism spectrum disorder on one hand and Huntington's on the other, which are two quite different disorders. There's some commonalities, obviously, but the fact that it's so important to understand that underlying way that the brain works could actually help both of those and, and even many more disorders, right? Yeah, because it's a pathway that controls a basic function of a cell, not just neurons, any cell, in fact. So this, this actin cytoskeleton, which is the scaffolding for the neurons, is also scaffolding for every other cell. How much of that seems to be related to the genetics? So how much of the neogenin is um, genetic and how much of it happens from, say, mutations or the environment? Or... If you have one or two genes affected, there's a lot of backup in development. There's a lot of backup genes to make sure things don't go wrong. But if each of those backup genes is not functioning properly, then there's an accumulation that means that your synapses are not going to form as well as they might. So that makes a bit more sense as to why you can't really necessarily pinpoint one gene. So there's many genes, but also some genes can be turned on and off. And it's maybe even more subtle than that, isn't it? They can be turned up and down. They can be turned up and down, yeah. So that's that's um, what epigenetics can do. They can turn them up and down. I mean, they could be perfectly normal, but they can be turned up and down by modifications to the gene. But once a neuron synapse, so its connections have degraded, that's kind of it though, isn't it? They don't really come back from that and that's kind of the key, isn't it? Well, synapses are growing and remodelling the whole time in your brain and that's the underlying basis of forming a memory, right? So you need to have dynamic synapses because you don't need to remember what happened two days ago at the football, but you do need to remember the name of your boss and your your mum's birthday, maybe. Yeah, all of those sort of things. So synapses that are involved in important long-term memories that you have to maintain stay stable. But the synapses that are involved in short-term memory that you really don't need to keep in your mind for more than two minutes disappear. So synapses are always forming and disappearing, but they have to be able to recognise the difference and respond to the right signals, say, to keep or to delete. And often that those that's got to do with the ability of the synapses to grow in terms of they get bigger when incoming information is important and then they shrink again when you don't need to keep that. And that is all dependent, going back to this scaffolding, that is completely dependent on the ability to build up the scaffold or pull the scaffolding down. And what about in your research in terms of the synapses and the stem cells? When things are going wrong in those, can they be rescued if you somehow are able to correct those signalling molecules? All the um, cortical malformations and the malformations that are associated with Alzheimer's occur largely prior to birth. Until very recently, we haven't had the ability to diagnose or see those malformations, especially ones like associated with autism because they can be quite small and focal, right? But until the ability to do fetal MRIs, um, it hasn't 
really been possible to be able to diagnose a malformation. You can actually diagnose some forms of hydrocephalus because the baby's head is bigger. So you'd be able to see that from a sonogram. But most of these malformations you can't see. Magnetic resonance imaging technology is so fantastic that we can now see things at the cellular level in a, in a fetus or a human brain, but fetus as well. So you can start to see at the very early stages when things are starting to go wrong. Um, one would imagine in, I don't know, 20 years that you would diagnose that this fetus is appearing to have some migrational defects or stem cell difficulties and you could work out what's going on and you could then perhaps provide some sort of therapeutic drug to enhance stem cell activity so it, you control its ability to make neurons. I mean, that's a long way in the future, but that's where we would be heading. It seems like all of those um, molecules that get the neuron to do that or to, to grow the structure and to pull it back with the actin, it seems like that's almost like an orchestra of really finely controlled ebbs and flows. Correct. So the actin cytoskeleton is the scaffold to maintain the shape of the cells and the synapses, but it's also a signaling platform. So all the key proteins that control growth, the ability of cells to divide, the ability of cells to respond to incoming signals to migrate to a different part or put out a nerve or whatever, Although a lot of those signaling molecules and the integrating molecules that take in all the different signals from different pathways or different environments into the cell, they all sit on the actin cytoskeleton as well. So the actin cytoskeleton can act as a scaffold to make sure that the right molecules are next to each other at the right time to pass on the signals. It seems pretty amazing to me that so much is still unknown about such important cells in the body. I mean, they make up our brain, but also that they seem so complicated. Is that partly why there's still much to know? Well, the neuron is the most complicated cell in the body because it's not just a cell that grows and it doesn't just provide nutrients, doesn't provide structure for tissues, for instance. Its job is to take in information. It's, there's computers. Right? There's, they're taking in information, synthesising the information, reinterpreting the information, working out where they're supposed to send it and then send the information out to the appropriate secondary part of the brain for you to say the right thing and not embarrass yourself or be able to jump the puddle. Or Your work really is very fundamental, very basic, what's called basic science. So why is it important to do that type of research? Because we need to understand the building blocks of every cell, but particularly the building blocks of a neuron, because it's the neuron that allows us to interpret the world and deal with the world. And of course, if something goes wrong with a neuron, then there are many unfortunate examples of psychiatric illnesses that have quite profound consequences for not just the individual sufferers, but for everybody around them. And those disorders are basically a defect at the molecular level of the neuron. And so, I mean, we can treat psychiatric illness by giving them a drug, but often they don't really know how the drug works and it's hit and miss. So if you want a more coordinated, defined, designed way of trying to deal with a particular illness or psychiatric disorder or Huntington's, you need to know what building block needs to be adjusted or changed or activated. So you need to know what the molecular interactions are to really design effective drugs. That was Professor Helen Cooper talking about the intricate and complex ways our brain cells develop. 
And if you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. You can also download a copy of our latest magazine, The Brain, The Nature of Discovery. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.